We're still in the stage of observation. So the literary devices that I gave you, you can basically observe most of those. Didn't take interpretation. Kind of on the boundary there in some cases, but I think you can make the observations to see contrast or comparison. Certainly you can see repetition. You can see continuity. So we're still just observing right now. We're not trying to dig out the meaning or why did the author put these things in this order or this way. These are things to observe, and these all relate to structure. We looked at grammatical structure, dealing with syntactical relationships. We have just completed looking at literary structure. And this gives you a better idea what we mean by literary structure, literary relationships, how material is arranged, how material is put together, how material fits and communicates, different devices that can be used in arranging material. Let's look at another area of observation. We've looked at terms, we've looked at structure. It's also good to think in terms of what is the purpose. So let's talk a little bit about purpose. And when we speak of purpose, we can observe the purpose of the whole book. We talked about that in a book study. Or we can talk about what is the purpose of this division as opposed to maybe the next division. What is the purpose of this paragraph? Or what is the purpose of this sentence within this paragraph? Or what is the purpose of this particular word? So it goes the spectrum. So this is a kind of a big category that you want to look at in terms of everything that you're observing. The purpose of every aspect of any given book. And just to introduce it, to show how important it can be, let me give you an illustration. And this is an illustration of how you can see failure to see a purpose can affect doctrine, can affect interpretation very drastically. What I'd like to do is use charismatics as an example. Now, I don't have a problem with charismatics in general. I think most are well-meaning and most do good exegesis. I just have a problem with a few of the doctrines that they put forward because I don't think they're biblical. So don't misinterpret what I'm saying concerning charismatics. In fact, I kind of spiritually grew up almost in a charismatic environment but never became one myself. So I'm not against them or down on most of their theology. But there are some doctrines, and I'll use just one as an example. The doctrine of the second blessing, the idea that you receive salvation, that's your first blessing, but you must seek and you can receive a second blessing. That second blessing is what they call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You familiar with that issue there? And the way they understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second blessing that manifests itself, and most charismatics that hold to this view believe that speaking in tongues is part of that. 
Now, the reason I mention that and the reason I say that I would disagree with it because I think it's unbiblical, but they would say that it's based on Scripture. In other words, our doctrine, we didn't make it up, it's based on the book of Acts. Okay? And, in fact, it is based on the book of Acts. It's based on Acts chapter 2, where on the day of Pentecost, in Jerusalem, there was a display of miraculous phenomenon, including speaking in tongues. And then, also in chapter 8, so you have a second occurrence, where you have a second blessing of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 8, after salvation. So you have time between salvation and the receiving of the Holy Spirit. And you have a similar situation in Acts chapter 10 at the end with Cornelius, and you have the speaking of tongues there as well. And you have a fourth incident in chapter 19 where something similar is taking place there. So they base this idea of subsequent blessing or a second blessing on those four passages in the book of Acts. Well, what's the problem with that? The problem is the book of Acts is not designed, its purpose is not to set forth doctrine. Did you get that? The purpose of Acts has more of a historical purpose. In other words, it's laying out what actually happened. So you have to be very careful in the book of Acts. And by the way, evangelicals sometimes use the book of Acts to come up with certain practices. And I think they're making the same mistake in that they fail to observe the purpose of the book of Acts and have made the book of Acts a doctrinal exposition rather than a historical exposition. So the guideline in interpreting the book of Acts is when it comes to setting forth a doctrine, you find and set forth your doctrine from the books that are designed to be doctrinal, primarily epistolary books. Not exclusively, but primarily epistolary books. And now if you see an example of that doctrine in the book of Acts, you see it illustrated in the book of Acts. But if the sole place for basing a doctrine is a book that is not designed to be doctrinal, then it's on a shaky foundation. And that's the issue there. Okay? It's not that the book of Acts doesn't contain doctrine or doesn't illustrate doctrine, but if you're dependent solely on the book of Acts for any particular doctrine, and I'm going to give you some examples, some of them ridiculous, that you might come up with, if you base them solely on a book like the book of Acts. See the difference there? So again, you go to books like Romans, books like Ephesians, books Philippians or First Peter, to establish your doctrine, and then from there, then with that foundation, now you can best interpret what you see in the book of Acts, including spiritual gifts. So if you want to understand spiritual gifts, including the speaking in tongues and interpreting of tongues, you have to go to Romans, where you have a chapter 12, or you go to Ephesians chapter 4, or you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and even 1 Peter 
chapter 4. You have a brief discussion there. And from those passages, you establish a doctrine. And similarly, if you're dealing with the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you have to go to passages like the book of Romans. And from there, that sets the foundation. And from those books, there is no evidence for a second blessing. Got it? That's the clearest explanation I've ever heard of that speaking in tongues controversy. Okay, well, hermeneutics. Because I would, that, I, that's the church I was raised in. And Good. Yeah, thank you. Good. The problem here at issue, what is the purpose of the book of Acts? It's not to set forth doctrine. So don't base your doctrine on anything in the book of Acts. Base it on books that are designed for that. And now you go to the book of Acts and you can find illustrations of lots of doctrine. But it's based on a good foundation. Let me give you some examples of purpose and doctrine from the book of Acts to show you why this is faulty. I just gave you the example, uh, first of all, the baptism of the Holy Spirit based on Acts chapter 2, chapter 8, chapter 10, and chapter 19. Gave you that explanation. Secondly, would you want to base a practice of selecting elders based on Acts chapter 1 in your church? In other words, come up with Ten men and draw lots. Well, we have a pattern, don't we, in the book of Acts? Isn't that the pattern? No, you go to where to select your leaders? You go to First Timothy, Titus, where it talks about... Yeah, remember those two passages. This is a historical situation that under the circumstances of that situation in history, the Holy Spirit led them to select the next replacement of Judas by lots. It's not a pattern. So be very, very careful when you go to the book of Acts and say this is a pattern for practice today. Go to doctrinal sections to establish doctrine and patterns, not the book of Acts. Yep. You know, we though as evangelicals, one of the things that we do extract for uh, for the way we structure our church rules has to do with deacons versus elders. And, and again, quoted a lot from Max. Yeah, in our circles. Right. That's why I say about that. Well, same thing. Same thing. Yeah, we need to go to the books that are designed to set a foundation or teaching concerning church administration, not the book of Acts. I did preface saying that evangelicals do the same thing in other areas, not with the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, so we need to be careful with so-called patterns in the book of Acts. Here's another one in Acts chapter 2, a basis for communism in the church or a communism, communistic, socialistic idea, because didn't they share everything in common and put everything at the feet of the apostles? Again, we have a historical situation, and it only occurs in the book of Acts. You find out later on, they don't do that anymore. That was a particular situation. That's a historical situation that was appropriate for that 
particular situation, not necessarily a pattern for the church in general. So you can't use that passage. Here's a good one. How would you like to set church policy of church discipline from Acts chapter 5? Do you remember the incident there? That's a passage on church discipline. Ananias and Sapphira? So you have to get a church gun or... (laughs) That solves the problem. (laughs) Takes care of church discipline. But does that happen any other time in church history? Or or in the book of Acts at least? That's a one-time situation where that situation, the Holy Spirit dictated that Ananias and Sapphira were basically executed, not by Peter though. But that was church discipline that was very, very effective. And you read the passage, uh, the church trembled after that situation. So don't set your church discipline doctrine or policy on Acts chapter 5. Now, I mean, nobody does that, but I'm kind of giving you examples here of what can go wrong when you're doing exactly what we're talking about here, setting doctrine uh, from books that are not designed in that way. Well, why don't we go do evangelism amongst Jewish people and do evangelism in the synagogue? Isn't that Paul's pattern? That's a pattern in Acts. Well, again, we're dealing with a situation that is kind of unique to the first century. We live in predominantly a Gentile world, so in Albuquerque, what, there's two synagogues? You you know, there's a vast majority of people that are not Jewish. Yes, Paul did that, but that's a unique first century situation. It's not a pattern for church practice. Infant baptism, some have based infant baptism based on the conversion of Cornelius when his whole family was baptized. And they would say, well, that would probably include children. Well, yes. But again, this is a historical situation and it's not as clear concerning the infants that were baptized anyway. How about snake handling? Snake handlings use Mark and the book of Acts. Chapter 28, when Paul shook off the viper and was, you know, he was supposed to die, he didn't. Ah, there's a basis. If you believe enough, you can handle snakes. Well, some of these are a little ridiculous, but the point, you see the point I'm making here. It's important to observe the purpose of the book of Acts. So purpose is something that you want to observe, not only on the book level, but you want to observe it all the way down to why does the author select this particular word? And let me give you some uh, areas of purpose to look for. Some passages have a purpose to exhort. To exhort. I mentioned before that uh, the first part of First Peter is primarily doctrinal, all the way through, I think, verse... Verse 12, 1 Peter is doctrinal. And then beginning in verse 13 through the end of the book, we have a series of exhortation after exhortation after exhortation. So you might see a theme in the latter part of Peter's epistle is predominantly to exhort. And in verse 15, it says, like the Holy One, here's just an example, who called you by be holy yourself. 
also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Exhortation to holiness. And I would say the primary purpose of this particular paragraph is to exhort, because there's other exhortations in there as well. Remember Romans 12, the first two verses. Therefore, I urge you. This is after his doctrinal section. Now he begins to exhort. In chapter 12, to the end of the the book, up to the conclusion, series of exhortations. So that section is predominantly to exhort. 12.1, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable God etc. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. Exhortation. See that? Those are easy to identify. Easy to, because if it's a command, it's usually, or a encouragement, or exhortation. Primarily to move you to action, or to exhort. Some passages designed to comfort. An example of 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, Paul describes the rapture and other eschatological ideas. And how does he conclude? Therefore what? Comfort one another with these words. And in the context, what is he talking about concerning the Thessalonians? It appears that they had experienced some of their friends and relatives dying, and now they're wondering about, well, what happens to them concerning the things that Paul had taught them concerning eschatology? So he's basically correcting misconceptions or misunderstandings or clarifying eschatological themes. And he does that so that they may be comforted concerning those that have died. They will be raptured, that passage. They will be raised from the dead. So comfort. And there's lots of passages we could use as examples. The the entire books of Romans... Ephesians, except for the exhortation portions, are to convince. So you have argumentation, you have logical sequence of ideas, the idea of convincing, or you might have apologetic passages with a purpose to convince. So teaching passages where you have doctrine set forth, convincing. Some passages are designed to warn much of the book of Revelation. Chapter 2, verse 16, particularly, this is to one of the churches, therefore repent, or else, this is Jesus speaking to the church, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Clear warning. And in fact, every one of the seven churches, except one, have a warning to them. So it has a purpose to warn. A lot of prophetic passages are designed to warn us. Old Testament and New Testament. To illustrate. Some passages are designed to illustrate. I like to use Romans 7, verses 1 through 4, because I've uh, heard preachers use that to teach concepts of marriage and rip that passage out of the context of the doctrine that Paul is setting forth in Romans 4 through 8. But what Paul is doing is he's using the concept of marriage to illustrate 
the concept that he's developing concerning justification by faith in that passage. Do you, you have that there, Mark? Do you want to read a little bit of it? Uh, which verses? Verse 4. Yeah. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die, made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who has, was raised from the dead, in order that you might bear fruit. Okay, and that last verse is the key there. He's not teaching on marriage. He's using marriage to illustrate this breaking away from the law. We're no longer bound to the law. We are free in grace. And if you look at the last part of chapter 6, it just continues from chapter 6, and he's illustrating what he is set forth in chapter 6. You know, there are certain things in there that do give us some insight into the marriage relationship, but the context is in this doctrine of justification by faith, and he's using marriage as an illustration. Sixth, another kind of purpose that you can look for is assurance. There's a lot of passages that are given for assurance, a lot of passages relating to what God has done for us to assure us in our faith. Clear passage is 1 John 5, 5.13. In fact, much of 1 John, but here's a clear one. These things I have written to you who believe in the, the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In that passage, assurance of eternal life. And he's saying this: these things I have written. In other words, the whole book. Assurance. There's some books, entire books, that are designed to correct. This is the whole book of 1 Corinthians. But a lot of individual passages as well. Purpose to correct. And even simply to prophesy or to lay out God's program in some details concerning what God is going to do in the future. Much of the book of Revelation not only warns but also gives us a lot of information that does not even pertain to the church. So they're prophetic to give us a picture of what God will do in the future. And by knowing that, it's designed to show us that God ultimately will be victorious. God will ultimately deal with sin. God will ultimately bring all things to consummation so we can trust him today to live according to what he has revealed to us here and now. So a purpose to prophesy. A lot of uh, Old Testament prophets as well, and a lot of prophetic passages. Probably the main purpose of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 through 4, seems to be to prophesy. In fact, not only that passage, but the paragraphs around it as well. That's where the rapture passage that clearly is to comfort It's also to prophesy.
See what we mean by purpose? These are observations. These are things to look for. And if you can discern a purpose, in some cases, this will help you to apply the passage. So this is kind of the first step in application. And we'll talk a lot about application after we talk about interpretation. So this is one of the steps that will get you to application. But it will also help you to understand why the author wrote what he did to the first century audience. So we've looked at observing terms. We've looked at observing structure. When we get to the interpretive stages, I'll show you how to do word studies in order to understand the meanings of these terms. Spend a lot of time on word studies. When it comes to structure, when we get to the interpretive stage, we'll talk a lot about analyzing structure, both at the grammatical level and also outside the sentence. And you want to observe purpose, and this will also help us to interpret. Another area is observing literary form. And we've talked about this already when we talked about the literary principle So let me just review. In fact, I'm going to use the identical slide. This will be a review of what we've already talked about. And I'm going to go over this quickly because at the end we will spend several hours on literary form or special hermeneutics. So we'll we'll expand this at the end of our course. I mentioned that uh, you want to be able to distinguish discursive material This is a broad category that would include epistolary literature, which we'll give special attention to, but it also will include sermonic-type material like the Sermon on the Mount, the Upper Room Discourse, the Olivet Discourse, some of the sermons in the Book of Acts, both Peter and Paul. That's discursive material, where you have... Material that's presented primarily for the purpose of convincing or teaching. These are your doctrinal portions of Scripture. Secondly, we have narrative, and in Scripture this is historical narrative. We don't have novels that are non-historical material. So we'll spend a lot of time about spending on narrative material, special hermeneutics. Poetic material. Very extensive in the Bible, both Old Testament and even New Testament. This is the use of vivid language. There is such a thing as poetic license. In other words, in poetic material, language has more flexibility than it does in discursive, so you treat it a little bit differently. So you need to be aware, is this material poetic? And you can make that simple observation. Is this a poetic line within a longer narrative. You have some of that in the Gospels. You want to be able to identify that. In fact, Sunday I was just mentioning in the Hebrews 11 passage, that first verse at least seems very similar to Hebrew poetry. Faith is the, how does it go, the assurance of things hoped for. Line one, Hebrew poetry synonymous with line two. The convictions of things unseen, I think. I didn't intend to memorize it, but once you exegete it and teach it, sometimes you can remember it. 
So you seem to have one line following the other line. That's Hebrew poetry. That's New Testament. And we'll talk a lot about that in special hermeneutics. Prophetic material, unique to Scripture, has its own characteristics that we'll look at. And you want to distinguish all of these from parabolic material or parables. Parables of Jesus. Parables in Old Testament. I'll give you some insight in parabolic material. And there's a lot of other types of literature that we find in, in, in the Bible. We have legal material. Much of the law, the Mosaic law. We have a subset of prophetic called types, typology. In fact, we looked at one of them in Romans chapter 5 when we were talking about the first and second Adam. That same passage, basically Paul is telling us that this is a type of Christ. Adam is a type of Christ. That's why you have that correspondence of both contrast and comparison. And we brought those out as we looked at some of the specifics there. So you have typology. Also a subset of prophetic is what's called apocalyptic, which has its own unique characteristics that are different from general prophetic material. So there's other kinds of literary form as well. Some consider the Gospels, the four Gospels, a literary form in themselves, kind of a subset of narrative material. In selecting material, the Holy Spirit is acting upon the will. And our wills are of most importance to, to God. He wants to shape our volition. And different material acts on the will in different ways. For example, discursive material or doctrinal material or material designed to convince acts primarily on the intellect. Narrative material, and we'll expand this when we get to special hermeneutics, primarily attempts to give you an experience that took place in history. So when you read narrative material, put yourself in the story. Become an observer of the events. And what the writer attempts to do is give you all of the little pieces of data so that you can, in your mind, imagine yourself being there. That's narrative. He'll introduce you to characters, and those characters will do certain things, and there will be a plot. Put yourself into the story. Try to experience vicariously the experience of those that are in the story that you're reading. That's how you apply narrative, and that's how you best understand narrative. Go through the same experiences, and you learn the positive and the negative. In other words, I want to avoid the thing, the mistakes that were made of those characters in this passage, and I want to emulate the positive examples of faith or the examples of good character or whatever in the passage. And when I see it played out, oh, okay, I don't want to do that. I want to do this. That's the design of narrative material. So it affects the will through giving you something of an experience of those that were experiencing the things that were going on in the past history. It's narrative. What do you think poetry appeals to? Emotion, exactly. 
Poetry appeals to the emotion. So it's trying to affect the will still, but it affects the will by moving the emotions, because emotions are involved in volition. Make sense? That's literary form. We'll come back to that. Come back to literary form. Quick review. But at the observational stage, you want to observe the literary form of the material you're dealing with. Not as important as any of the others. In fact, the most important aspects are are your terms, observation of terms, and your observation of the structure. That's most important in exegesis. Everything else adds to it, including number five, observing the atmosphere of a passage. And I'll give you one where if you fail to observe the atmosphere, you can totally misinterpret a passage. And there's enough clues in the context that you can come to the right conclusion there. So let's look at this area of atmosphere. Sometimes it has very little, particularly in books like Romans and Ephesians. It's pretty well kind of calm, no emotion, because it's dealing with uh, convincing. But some passages are overwhelmingly, have a thanksgiving, uh, kind of an upbeat, positive atmosphere. First Thessalonians chapter 1. In fact, Paul, very commonly in many of his letters, starts off with thanks be to God, and he gives a whole long list of things to be thankful for. Before he gets into anything negative or before he gets into any exhortation, he wants us to be thankful for all that God has done for us, all that God has blessed us. Somebody look up Ephesians 1. How does he begin verse 3 there? But you see this in 1 Thessalonians 1, you see it in Colossians 1. The exception, and I'll use it as an illustration, there's there's one book that's an exception. Can you guess which one? He doesn't start with Thanksgiving. Can't think of one? Go down the list, it'll be the first one that you come across. <laughs> no, he starts off even with 1 Corinthians, yeah. No, 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 he's got No, one of the first ones. Oh, James wrote that one. That's right. <laughs> yep. How about Galatians? We'll talk about Galatians. Yeah. Right off the bat, he just whacks him across the face before no Thanksgiving. Who's got Ephesians one three? Blessed be the God and Father. How does it go? Praise be yeah. Who has blessed us in every every spiritual blessing? And then it goes down the list of many of the major ones. Overwhelming Thanksgiving. Some of them deal or move us to humility. <clears throat> David in Psalm fifty-one. This is after Nathan exposed his sin. It's overwhelmingly humble the response of David. That's why he's a man after God's own heart, because he responds rightly when he goofs up in major ways. Psalm 51. Psalm 51, particularly verses 3 through three through 12. Very humble. Joy. Some books are overwhelming in joy. This would be Psalm 32. After his confession of Psalm 31... David has the sense of forgiveness 
over that sin with Bathsheba. And there's overwhelming joy in that one. So the contrast, 51 is humility, 32 is joy. Just a few examples. Despair. Can you think of a book where despair and heavy lamentations would probably be your best example there? Very definite despair. And rightfully so, the the nation of Israel basically was now destroyed. All the hopes, all the dreams of those people wiped out. Jerusalem destroyed. The nation scattered. Nation going into captivity. Everything that God said concerning them has now been destroyed. No hope. Now, Jeremiah gives them a hope of a new covenant and a future, but for the time being, they're going to have to serve 70 years in captivity, and that's despair, lamentations. How about anger? Somebody read uh, 1 Corinthians 5. Let's see if we can pick up some anger there. Uh, while Josh is looking up that one, I'll have him read it. Uh, what about Matthew uh, 23? What's Jesus' state of mind in uh, Matthew 23? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You brood of viper... Oh, that's John the Baptist. That's another mad, angry passage. Jesus in Matthew 23, over and over. Woe to you, scribes... That, that's a pronouncement of judgment. That's anger. Somebody called whitewashed tombstones. Yeah, whitewashed tombstones and other colorful language. You got uh, the First uh, Corinthians five. See if you could just read a couple of verses in there. He's not only mad at the situation and the individual involved in this incestuous relationship, but he's mad particularly at the Corinthians. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, as such. Yeah, read it. Read it this way. It is actually reported. Go ahead. <laughs> there is sexual immorality among you. There's sexual immorality amongst you. <laughs> I mean sarcastic. No, 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 not sarcastic. This is anger. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up, have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. Yeah, and then he reprimands the church. There's anger there. I mean, you guys shouldn't allow this to happen in the body of Christ. Other passages, this is on the other end of the spectrum, just wonderment and awe and just overwhelming, just wow. A lot of passages, and by the way, the book of Revelation is one of the most worshipful books of all of the Bible. Some of the visions that you have after reading those visions, this is how you should respond in awe. Even at the judgments that are described, just wow. Wow, this, this is, and a lot of heavenly scenes where people just fall, fall down and, and worship and are singing, just overwhelming sense of awe and wonderment atmosphere and if you can pick those things up it contributes to your appreciation and your understanding of what the author is trying to accomplish here's Galatians 
urgency. We need to read that one. Somebody get, you want to get John, get uh, Galatians 1 and begin in verse 6. And who wants to do, Mark, why don't you do 1 Corinthians 4? We'll, we'll look at that one in a moment here. You got Galatians 1 there? Look, yeah. look at verse 6. And notice, he gives an introduction, but he move, he's moving real rapidly. He doesn't give any thanksgiving. Go ahead. I'm astonished. That you I'm astonished. Deserting him called you grace in Christ and returning to a different gospel. And then he goes on and he's just, how can you do this? This, this? You know, this is wrong. This is, you know, urgency. Some on the other end of the spectrum, uh, tenderness, almost all of First John, very, very tender. My little children, addressing them in real tender terms, mostly through throughout the book. Paul, after writing First Corinthians, which in many ways corrects problems, after some of them are corrected in Second Corinthians, there's a lot of tenderness in verses chapter one, three through eleven, Second Corinthians. Okay, notice 1 Corinthians 4, begin in verse 6 and read a little bit into that. Now, maybe I should let you read it and let you tell me what the uh, atmosphere of that passage is. If you miss this one, you're going to miss the whole point of what Paul is doing here. You got it? 1 Corinthians 4, begin in verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Keep reading. You are already filled. There, th- that's where it begins. Okay. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. Yeah, keep reading. And you pick up more. Are you picking up something here? Sarcasm. Yes. (laughs) Very good. I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, both the angels and the men. Yeah, you, you, you picked it up. Sarcasm. And if you miss that, you're going to misinterpret this idea. You've already become rich. You know, but that's, that's sarcasm. He means the very opposite. And maybe externally they might have been prosperous in a material way, but in reality they were like what Jesus says in uh, the book of Revelation to the churches. You're blind, naked, poor. Yeah, sarcasm. So that's atmosphere. If you can observe that, and there's an example of if you miss it, you're going to misinterpret that First Corinthians 4 passage. Well, that's observation. Oh, he had a I just comment. Have a thought, though. When we're looking for atmosphere, yet we're calling it an observation, an atmosphere also you almost have to interpret. know the whole passage. Y- yes, yes, yeah. So you can say, well, yeah. must be the atmosphere. Right. Yeah, and when I put it under observation, you're starting to think along these lines, but you're not going to come to some conclusions, particularly in that passage, until you've gone through some 
interpretation. That's a good good comment. Yeah. And like I said, you'll go back and forth in actual practice. But at least begin to try to see. In other words, as your first reading, oh, wow, Paul seems to be mad here. Well, Paul seems to have a sense of urgency. And then you can confirm that as you go further into the uh, interpretive process. So I hope I've overwhelmed you with enough things to observe that you can come up with 25 on X. One eight. Now, you're not looking for all of these things every time, but these are all the areas of possibility gathered together in a few categories. Well, let's spend the last few minutes of our time looking at an example, and this is Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And let's make some observations on structure. We did a little exercise in Matthew chapter, what was it, 5, on observing terms, and we prioritized observing terms. So let's prioritize instead of terms. Let me kind of walk you how you want to approach a passage in terms of observing the structure. And to start off with, what's the very first thing that you want to observe when you're looking at the structure? What's the first thing you want to observe? You're on the right track. What's a more specific thing you want to do? You're on the right track, but something more specific. Something very simple that's very easy. No, that's next. That's... Start with a complete sentence. Always start. In other words, break down, and you can observe that. I mean, that's pretty easy to do, right? So, you want to start... Where does, well, this is capitalized because it's God, but it's also capitalized because it's the first word in the sentence. So, look for... You go through here, and obviously you end up over here with a period. So, we're dealing with a complete sentence. That's the very first thing that you want to start. When you're dealing with structure... Work sentence by sentence. Can't overemphasize this. We'll go over this again when we get to the interpretive stage, because in analyzing structure, you'll start with sentences. But it starts with observing. So if you're working your way through the book of Hebrew or anywhere, if you're just selecting a passage, make sure that you know where the sentence begins and where the sentence ends. Deal with the sentence. Even if you're only concerned with a portion of that sentence, you need to know where it fits in in the overall sentence. Okay? So, I've given you, in this case, the first two verses is a complete sentence, and it doesn't end till the end of verse 2. And you can observe that. That's pretty easy. Your, use your, just your English text. The next thing you want to do is before you look at subject and verb. Well, you said first independent clause, yeah. Look for the the first or any independent clauses or broader, you can observe some of the clauses. And there's two ways of doing it. You can just start at the beginning and start, well, let's see, what is this? After he spoke long ago to the fathers and in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, comma, does all that fit together in terms of clauses? 
Hmm? Okay, that's a subordinate clause because of the after. But the point I'm making here is you just work your way. This, so you, it starts off with a subordinate, well, it has God, then it has a comma, and then it has a subordinate clause. In these last days has spoken to us in his son. That almost seems incomplete, right? Maybe God kind of should go here grammatically. God in these last days has spoken to us in His Son. Is that dependent or what is it? Independent? Okay. And then here's a comma. Whom He appointed heir of all things, comma. Is that an independent clause? Is that a clause that's... Hmm? Dependent. Whom makes it dependent? Through whom also he made the world. Is that a clause or is that just a phrase? It's a dependent clause. So we have a, in fact, here's the commas. God is kind of up here and then after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, comma. So we have a dependent clause. You identified it. You can observe that. And like we observed, God probably goes over here in terms of the grammar, it, God in these last days has spoken to us in His Son. That's the independent clause of that sentence. And if that's the independent clause, then that's the most important part of that sentence. And if that's the most important part, and there's only one clause, then all of the others are what subordinate to it. <laughs> in other words, they are telling you something about it, but this is the main thing that he's talking about. God in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. Now you can also observe, without interpreting, what is the subject of that independent clause. God, right off the bat. And what is the verb? Has spoken. Okay, so there's your main subject and your main verb. Of that whole sentence... The subject and the verb of the independent clause of every sentence is the most important elements of that sentence. Alright? Everything else, in other words, if you can identify the subject and the verb, everything else just tells you something about God and it tells you something about what God is doing here. He's speaking. Everything else is just adding to the idea of God speaking. The after tells us a time frame after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In other words, he's talking about things that happened in the past after he spoke long ago. So God spoke in the past, but what he's really communicating here is God speaking right now, in these last days. And even these other elements are just telling us something more about the speaking. It's in, it gives us when, in other words, these last days, and kind of the audience to us, and the, the one that he's speaking through in his son. So, if you know the verb, the main verb, everything else is just telling you more about the speaking and what the speaker is, who the speaker is. So you, you've got the major elements of that sentence. Everything else just modifies it. Whom he appointed heir of all things just tells us more about the Son there. So it gives us more information about the Son. Through whom also he made the world. Another little statement concerning what the Son has done also. 
So all of this just adds to telling us something about the Son of whom God is speaking in the last days. You see that? And these are just observations you can make. You basically are on the verge of understanding the main things that we have in this passage just by your observations. The main thing that this passage, this sentence is telling us is something about God speaking. You got that? Everything else just adds to it. After is a time frame. Whom? Refer to the Son. Through whom? Refer to the Son. These just add to it. And these are observations you can make. Just work your way, observing. Sentence begins here, ends here. There's a dependent clause, followed by an independent clause, followed by another dependent clause, another dependent. So we have three dependent clauses. And we have the main clause here, and you have the subject and the verb of that. Those are observations you can make on structure. And you're at the heart of understanding virtually everything in that uh, in that sense. By the way, what hermeneutical principle is this passage a foundation to? What which one of the hermeneutical principles is based on this on this and other passages, but this this is one of the clearest ones. Remember? Hermeneutical principle. Historical. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it touches on the historical, but there's one more specific. You gotta go down your list of fifteen, huh? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone come up with it? All of these apply, but this is a, this is a foundational passage to a very specific progressive revelation. Yes, progress of revelation. In other words, God revealed in the past in prophets and in many portions. In other words, there's lots of ways that God revealed in the past and this is progressive and in many ways, in other words, a lot of things that he revealed in the past in these last days, now at this time, we're coming to the end of the revelation. In other words, the progress of revelation. Yeah, this is one of the foundational passages to that hermeneutical principle. And in these last days, the ultimate revelation is in his son. Get that? Okay. Well, that kind of works you through. Now, there's other things you might observe in terms of structure. Those are the main elements. If you wanted to get into some more details, you might even identify some of the prepositional phrases or some of the other little things in there. You, you want to start observing even the little things in there. Last days, what this gets into interpretation, but you want to at least call it out and maybe make a note uh, and maybe at this point even ask the question, what is he referring to there? I thought the last days pertained to the second coming. Yeah, in these last days, he has a concept of the last days. Now, at least observe it, and then this leads you to ask your questions later on. What is he referring to here? Just some of the details you can start observing. We're getting down to terms, but dealing with structure. Why does he start out this way? This is a very unique way. Uh, no other book of the Bible starts out in this way. He wants to put great emphasis on who's speaking. 
That's interpretation, but that's starting to think in terms of the possibility that he wants to put a lot of emphasis on this revelation to a Jewish audience. Yeah, so purpose. The writer of Hebrews was at the podium saying, now ladies and gentlemen, I introduce your speaker, God. Yep, (laughs) exactly, very good. Okay, does that give you an example of where you start in terms of observing structure? You want to close for us, Jim? Father, we are grateful that 